Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. Other than family, no one has a greater impact on the well-being of persons with dementia than the nursing staff has. Physical characteristics of a facility may vary from very modern to very old, Programs, organizations may be given different names, may be licensed by different authorities, but good programs, programs that are good, are good because the staff makes them good. Nurses function at many levels, the CNA, the LVN, the RN, BSN, the MSN, the nurse practitioner, and the doctorate. The training of nurses in the care of older individuals who are at increased risk of dementia is of great importance. Our guest for today is the Regional Dean of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Nursing, Dr. Pearl Merritt. Dr. Merritt has been a pioneer in many aspects of dementia care. Uh, She helped develop and implement a model for community living for persons with dementia. Uh, She is now a Regional Dean and Professor, as I noted, and she has been recognized statewide and nationally for her innovative applications. She is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. Uh, She was awarded with the Outstanding Service and Dedication to Improve Nursing Practice and Long-Term Care, an award given by the Texas Association of Homes and Services for the Aging. Uh, She also has been honored by that organization as the Nurse of the Year. And she has been given the Outstanding Leadership for Vision of Cultural Change in Long-Term Care, by the Buckner Retirement Communities. She has been given the award of honor uh, by the Texas Association of Homes and Services for the Aging and the Distinguished Service Award by that organization as well. In 1988, I believe it was, she was the president of the Texas Association of Homes and Services for the Aging and she, uh, I'm sorry, not 1988, 2008, and uh, she continues to serve on the board of directors for that organization. Dr. Merritt is currently nominated for the very prestigious American Academy of Nursing John Hartford Award for her contributions in clinical care and public policy. She has been the vice president of operations for the Sears Methodist Retirement System and the president of Buckner Retirement Services, where she brought the first greenhouse model into Texas as a living environment for persons with cognitive impairments. Now she has turned her attention to model programs for training of nurses. Dr. Pearl Merritt, welcome to this program. I am so appreciative of you for being on the program with us today. Thank you. I feel very honored to be on the program. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, with all of these credentials, with the many wonderful things that you've done professionally, we were talking before the program, you were a CNA at one time. 
very much. I started as a, actually a volunteer in, uh, in high school. I started as a volunteer in a nursing home. And then from there, I had a passion in working for the elderly. And so I decided I wanted to go on and be a certified nursing assistant. And somewhere from there, through the uh, academic ladder, uh, you persisted. And you've had a number of uh, appointments or positions where you could have a very powerful impact, not just on the world of nursing, but on the world of dementia care as well. That is true. Um, I actually, I I have to explain because I think it's kind of interesting that from being a certified nursing assistant, then a licensed vocational nurse, I decided from there I wanted to be a registered nurse. So at that time we had a diploma program, three-year RN diploma. And then from there, I got hooked on education and nursing and um, decided I wanted to get the bachelor's degree in nursing. So I did that. Then I really got hooked on education and got a master's in management and HR and a master's in nursing. And finally, I decided I want a, a doctorate. And so I got a doctorate in education. But I'm really proud of the fact that I uh, have a varied knowledge of, of the education in the nursing field. So, are you finished with school yet? (laughs) Now dean of a nursing school. What has that transition been like for you? Well, it's been very exciting because I do have a passion for working with the elderly and with education. And I knew I wanted to really make a difference. And so, by transitioning, it gave me an opportunity to have a great influence on young people's lives coming into nursing. And... um, hopefully to help persuade them that there are other areas out there than pediatrics and the emergency room and ICU that there are very important areas such as geriatrics and we need younger nurses coming into the field because we're all aging as you know the aging baby boomers and so we need people that are committed and caring to take care of us. Let's go back to your time as the um, uh, Vice President of Operations for the Sears Methodist Retirement Center and the development of the the Windcrest Alzheimer Care Center. That became a model program nationwide, I know. What were you and the Sears Board and the Sears Administration wanting to um, uh, create or develop with the Windcrest program? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that, and and I believe that was one of the first, in certainly in Texas and possibly the nation, but we specialized in the care of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and we actually did work with Texas Tech University Health Science Center closely. We worked with the regulators closely, Um, but we wanted to have a special environment for people with dementia, Alzheimer's related disorders, to receive the very best care and to um, focus on activities and not just be in a room setting and doing absolutely nothing. We wanted to stimulate the mind, find various activities to keep them busy, perhaps men that liked carpentry and liked to work with their hands. We would have models on each unit for them Uh, We tried to individualize what their needs were, what their past 
vocation was and really bring back some of those memories and also work closely with their caregivers. You know, the information that um, you and your colleagues developed there and um, distributed around the country has has just been fascinating. I remember my first excursion into that facility and I was looking at the door the door through which I had come to enter the unit and through which I would have to leave to exit the unit. And there was a white picket fence painted along the walls and continuously across the door and along the other walls. What was the purpose uh-huh. of that? Uh-huh. Well, certainly we wanted a home-like environment, and uh, we tried to blend the environment in where it was like their home, and um, every now and then we might have somebody who was a risk of leaving, and and certainly with Alzheimer's disease, there were certain um, devices or certain, um, like a picket fence or Uh, or so, which would maybe even camouflage that door where the individual would not go out the door. Mm -hmm. But it also made them feel like they were at home also. And, you know, a white picket fence is kind of a homey environment and gives you a warm feeling. That's right. My favorite place out there, actually, (laughs) was the little shop area where there were clasps and hasps and nuts and bolts Uh and screws and uh, hinges. And I... have felt uh, many times that that was such an excellent thing to have on that particular station because people liked, especially the men, liked being there. They liked uh, working with their hands and doing things that they had been doing all their lives. So that was such a wonderful idea. One of the key aspects of the magic of Windcrest, however, was how to combine patients uh, at a station or how to combine patients on a unit, right? right, right. How, what guided you in deciding which patients would be with which other patients? We wanted to be sure that um, they would be like, similar to the other patients and uh, we would have a team meeting and certainly all disciplines were involved and the family was involved on which level they would go into. And um, if they had more individuals that were like them and had the same level of uh, cognitive um, knowledge, they would do better being in groups. Uh, maybe people that were in the early stages all were grouped together and they were able to actually find their own way of communication with others. And then we would have progressed to the areas where, you know, at the end stage where the individuals were similar. And it, we did find that it did make a difference in their adjusting to that environment. And that means um, not as much use of psychotropic medications, medications that can excessively sedate, uh, cause falling to occur and things like that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. We did not want to uh, use a lot of psychotropic medication. And, and again, we found ways by by grouping the individuals together to find activities that kept them busy where they may not become agitated. One of the bigger challenges, I believe, for you and your team uh, was to navigate regulations. It was very much a challenge. And I must say we've come a long way. And I really have to brag on the regulators that we worked with. They were very open-minded. But 
long-term care regulations can be very tedious, very tenuous, and we worked closely with the regulators on various rules and regulations. We got them involved in the planning phase, and I think that made a difference. And they basically said, if you see something unusual that we need to do different, the program manager, he said, let us know. We'll work with you on that. So because of that, we were successful and were able to make a difference. Well, that was very wise on your part to take that uh, uh, proactive approach to it. Um, When you have a new or a model program, everybody is excited about it, everybody does their best, but when you then take that program and replicate it in other cities, things can change, right? So to maintain a quality program, it takes more than having a really good uh, set of diagrams, but it takes the right people. So how were you able to do that so successfully as you replicated the Windcrest program in other cities? That That is a very good question, and it is very important because it is about people and finding the right fit, finding the right people that had that passion. That was critical. And uh, But we would have a team that would go from Windcrest as we opened up another Alzheimer's community in another city. And we would work with them and train them and have videos and have group sessions and talk with them. Uh, actually get the families involved again because each community is different. But we had to carry that philosophy and passion. And that was such excellent planning. Well, when we come back from a break in just a second here, I'm going to ask you about that that administrative and clinical challenge of staff turnover. Okay. So let's go to break, and when we return, we will continue to talk with Dr. Pearl Merritt. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for staying with us through the commercial break. We are talking with Dr. Pearl Merritt, who is an academy, a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing, currently is dean and professor, regional dean at the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Nursing. And we were talking about the Wincrest Alzheimer Care Center and what it took to um implement that basic model in different settings and so much of that boiled down to staff and i was astounded by something that you told me many years ago about staff turnover in long-term care facilities well certainly staff turnover is very important something that we looked at closely because with the dementia patients especially they need that continuity they don't need a lot of different faces and certainly, we did everything we could to prevent as much staff turnover, which we would empower the people. We would, I think, treat people very well. Our own family, uh, it's important to have the staff be a part of the family and come up with ideas. And um, obviously, we we had excellent turnover rate. We had very, very little turnover rate because, number one, I think they loved working in that environment and they had a passion you know it was very important to choose people that we hired that enjoyed that environment so we really did work on that to create a family environment of the employees and a key component of that of course as you said was empowerment because when someone sees an idea that they generated or they brought forward become implemented and result in a change they also then develop a sense of ownership, not just of the idea, but of the overall endeavor. Exactly. And the housekeepers, the janitors, the nurse aides, they had more knowledge many times because they worked closely with the patients. And so they had good ideas and we would listen to their ideas. And um, there are several situations where they really knew more than the nurses on some of the behavior problems that would come about. We listened to them and they would help solve the problem. Mm-hmm. One of the perennial um state-level legislative issues is the training requirements for people that work in long-term care or that especially work in a specialized Alzheimer care unit. Uh, How do you go about preparing, let's say, CNAs for the kinds of situations they're going to encounter? Well, before uh, they go to work, Certainly, they had education and training as it relates to dealing with Alzheimer's disease and dementia, uh, talking about behaviors and how you deal with certain issues. Education is the key. So there were no surprises. They were proactive. And so we had much intensive education and training before they started their actual job. And so if then the staff person feels both competent and empowered, 
it's an even greater benefit to the people that are residing there for whom they're providing care and for the organization as well. It, it results in better quality and better stability for the resident, the families, and the employee. Now let's switch gears. You became president of Buckner Retirement Services, and they um, – I have been blessed to have had the opportunity to visit each of their long-term care campuses. And I, again, was tremendously impressed by the quality of staff. And uh, just as in the Sears Methodist system, and I think this is something that you infect these organizations with, there are smiles on the faces of the janitors. There are smiles on the faces of those people that are serving meals, those people that are uh, changing bedding, that everyone in the organization has bought into what the organization is trying to accomplish. At Buckner, you brought a new model of housing into Texas, and that's the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And I know that this is, was a uh, an undertaking that was very dear to your heart. Talk with us about that. It was, and, and I was thrilled that... Um, when I was with Buckner, the Buckner board was very responsive. I put together a plan, working closely with um, the vice president. We put together a plan of what we wanted. Dr. Bill Thomas is the one who founded the Greenhouse Homes. And, uh, the and that was in Mississippi, do I remember? In Mississippi. Yes. That was the first ones. Uh-huh. And uh, so I presented the plan uh, to the board And they were very much on board with that and said, let's do that. And we were the first in the state of Texas to have the greenhouse homes. It is a house that would have like 10 people in the home. Uh, Each resident, each person would have their own individual room, private room. And all 10 of the individuals would sit at a table together, just as we were at a long table of family having breakfast, having all of their meals. And it's like the nurse aides were actually, they did the cooking, they did the cleaning, and they did the caregiving of that resident. That really made the individual feel comfortable not having a lot of different people involved. And the cooking was right there in that home. It right. was, and they had the aroma. The the uh, patients had the aroma of bacon and coffee and in the morning, and it made them just the aroma feel like they're at home. And that cooking is very important. I think that's a very important component. <laughs> you have uh, mentioned to me on occasion some some stories, and I know they're just anecdotal. You know, I know that it's not the same as a double-bind, placebo-controlled <laughs> trial, but some stories that you've told me about people who responded so wonderfully to that environment. Mm-hmm. What, one example that I remember is an individual who, when she was at home, all she would eat was chocolate. She would not eat a normal meal. And when she was admitted, the daughter said, she will only eat chocolate. She will not eat, any, eat anything else. And within a week... She was in the environment where she was sitting at the table. She saw the other residents eating breakfast, the bacon and the eggs, and she asked for bacon and eggs, and she started eating normal meals. That's just a small example of how individuals, you know, you can only imagine how their diet and nutrition changed. And so that's a small example, but there are many examples like that where it was an area where the individual thrived. It wasn't a place for them to go and die. They thrived. Pets, we would have pets in the environment. Grandchildren would come and visit. So it was truly like home. I uh, 
again at your invitation had the opportunity to tour that uh, uh, greenhouse and was really impressed with the ambiance. I was really impressed with the staff, the visual organization of it, because visual um, uh, perceptual abilities can become a pretty significant problem for people as cognitive impairments decline. But I thought it was a, a uh, really wonderful setting for these individuals and um, gave them so much more sensory awareness of ongoing life activities. You know, we don't think about it, but when a meal on a tray suddenly shows up in your room and you had no idea anybody was cooking, that's a little bit different from the anticipation of enjoying a meal, a meal because you can smell, for example, the bacon or you can smell whatever is being prepared and you can hear the sizzling in the skillet and, and that kind of thing. So a very powerful program. Right. One, one particular lady uh, that had been admitted could not even walk. She was in a wheelchair. But when she came in that environment, she was able to walk again because it was a, a an environment where she did not have to walk the long hallways and again sitting at that table and having a meal with other people before that she was eating in her room in the nursing home so it, we really did see examples where they would thrive well things have come a long way since you were a cna <laughs> <laughs> they have. and you have been a key mover in that process i will tell you you now have turned your attention to the training of nurses what led you to make that decision? I wanted to be able to make a difference in a, uh, I guess, in a, in a different environment where I could see a different group of people. And I had a passion for working with young people. And so I, I knew that I could make a difference on a, on a different level. And so by going to an environment where I could teach and um talk with the faculty and talk with the students, I felt like I could really maybe lead some of them in that area and point them in that direction where they would have that passion. And, and that has happened. Well, I remember that Kennedy quote. Um, some people look at a situation and say, why? Others look at the situation and say, why not? <laughs> right. Let's look at what can be here if we give it every opportunity to try. Well, there are a lot of things that I want you to talk with us about in a little bit, um, especially the the um, mannequins, <laughs> the simulation capabilities that you have there, um, which are wonderful in terms of nursing generally, but really have specific applicability to training of nurses for an older population, a population who may experience confusion, at least as a transient um, a problem following surgery or following uh, an admission to ICU or may have a, a more persisting and progressive confusion. So the simulation capabilities that you have at the nursing school will really um, be very helpful here. And interestingly, Dr. Merritt, I was in a um, uh, long-term care setting a couple of weeks ago and the um, uh, nurse manager on that unit had heard one of our programs and asked me whether they could use that for training of their nurses um, as they have new uh, nurses come in or as they have um, uh, nurses go through their continuing education requirements and things like that. So I was very honored by that. You know, doing a program like this was a big step for me. You know, this is out of my comfort zone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and um, that made me feel that uh, doing this program can have a bigger and bigger impact. 
mostly because people like you give your time and your knowledge and your experience. So we are going to go to a break. And when we return, we will talk more with Dr. Pearl Merritt. Thank you. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters. The Brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for staying with us through that break, and we are back talking with Dr. Pearl Merritt, um, Regional Dean and Professor at the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Nursing, a member of the Board of Directors of what had previously been called the Texas Association of Homes and Services for the Aging, and now has a new name. What is that name? Leading Edge, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for that. And we have had someone send a question in, and the question is this. It's with respect to the greenhouses. Are um, Uh, Other health professionals also involved there, specifically this person is asking about speech and language pathology to help to improve communication skills and things like that. Right. And that is a very good question. Yes. The thing about the greenhouse homes, they are licensed as skilled. And so we work closely with the regulators on that. And so we are able to provide therapies, the speech and language 
occupational therapy. Many times physicians would write an order for various types of therapies. We very much welcome that because, again, it's bringing that patient to a higher level, and they worked closely with the nurse aides and with the nurses. You know, in an upcoming program, we will be talking with a speech and language pathologist specifically about communicating with individuals who have, for various neurological reasons, um, some compromise of some aspects of communication. And I know that that's something that you have spent a lot of time with nursing students, teaching them how to communicate with people that that may have some difficulties there. Right. That is very important. Communication is key. So, You have had a research grant for three years, and it's been called Nursing Assistant and Home Health Aid Program. Talk with me about that grant. Okay. I'm really proud of that grant. That was a, actually a $750,000 grant for three years, and it was through HRSA, through the federal uh, government. We were able to have a partnership. It was with Sears Methodist Retirement System and Texas Tech. And we were able for three years in a row to train nurse aides. There was no cost to them. And actually, we were able to give them a bonus at the end, um, which would allow them, it was a stipend and allowed them to buy uniforms, shoes to go to work and get a job. We actually put 260 people through that program and trained nurse aides. As you know, nurse aides are so important with the aging population. But another great thing about that grant, we had the nurse aide training at Sears Methodist Nursing Home, but I wanted to be able to bring them into Texas Tech, into our simulation center. And so when they did skills, we were able to bring them into Texas Tech and work with the mannequins that some are $100,000. And I think by exposing the nurse aides to that higher level, which they would not have gotten at a nursing home, by exposing them to that higher technology level, many of them went on from there to become nurses. And that was part of the goal of the grant, to um, encourage them to be nurses, physician's assistants. Several of them went on to other fields. And that must feel good to you to see the product of what you have done there. So what have you learned through the um, implementation of that grant. What have you learned that you can uh, help other training centers and educational centers and care centers to implement? You know, there is such a need for this, especially in the rural areas. There are not enough uh, nurse aides. But I think the fact that there are so many people out there and um, we actually have are going to start up another one through another community college but the need is there and the desire is there and many times a nurse aide just needed an opportunity i think that's what i learned through that that we would have a single person that might have five children and they found out they could do anything it helped improve their self-esteem and show they can do anything and from there they finished being a nurse aide and they were empowered to go on to school to a higher level that's great now you mentioned these mannequins (laughs) I've seen mannequins in store windows, and I don't think I'd pay $100,000 for one. But these mannequins, if you can talk about them generally first, and then we'll focus on how it helps in the area of geriatric nursing. What are these mannequins about? What do they do? 
Well, that is, I think, what is so exciting about education now is the technology and how things are changing. But we have several mannequins. Some mannequins, actually, there's a mannequin that actually gives birth. And we have the mannequin that goes through that birthing process and delivers a baby. And the mannequins, some of the mannequins, they blink. Now, I understand that particular mannequin can do different types of presentations of the baby right absolutely absolutely the different the bridge presentation or the normal absolutely and so it's teaching the nurses what is normal and what is not normal and um they bleed they can cry their pupils dilate um they can talk to you and certainly we have remote control and we have a it person uh internet technology person that's responsible for talking uh, as if they were the mannequin and then talking to the students and then the students can respond to that. But it is very exciting. It's really fascinating. And of course, the students take vitals and the mannequin can be programmed to show different heart rhythms, right? Uh, right. different um, other vital signs, different breath sounds. Right, right. That, that Very much so. And so they can uh see and hear, you know, the vital signs and and learn again what is normal and what is not normal. But it's a great educational opportunity for them before they get to the hospital. They can practice on the mannequins in the simulation lab. There was a seminar that the nursing school sponsored last summer, I believe. And this was a seminar that that covered a number of different topics, but one that was of a great deal of interest was the use of psychotropic medications. I remember looking at some research in the early 1980s, and they basically surveyed a group of nursing homes and said, what's the average number of medications a nursing home resident is taking? And they found that number to be 13. Right. What was the number of different medical diagnoses the patient has? That was more in the seven or eight area. Right. And so you had patients taking more. uh, I know this sounds a little bit oversimplified, but taking more medications than they had diseases. You know, and if you look at those medications, a lot of them were psychotropic medications, sleep medication, anti-anxiety medication. A, um, an antidepressant medication, often a what in those days was thought of more as a major tranquilizer, but what we would call now an antipsychotic medication, and often there would be a stimulant medication in there as well. Right. And in that seminar, the key point, uh, one key presentation was on what do you do instead of medications? And a lot of what you're addressing in training of nurses is about what you do so that the need for four or five different psychotropic medications arises. Right, right. right. And so that, it seems to me, that's where the um, the talking mannequin uh-huh. <laughs> um, comes into play. You know, this person may speak in, in very clear communicative ways. Uh, uh, capabilities or may present confusion, may present inconsistency as the um, nursing student is interviewing. Right. That's exactly right. And they can learn so much from having that scenario. Uh, we write the different scenarios for um, the IT person and for the nurse, but you're exactly right. You know, the goal is we do not want patients heavily medicated, but we could have the different scenarios where 
the nurse is talking to the patient and um, can, you know, maybe there's uh, confusion or mumbling or um, just various kinds of responses, but the nurse can learn more through that interaction with the with the geriatric resident. And in fact, what questions the nurse asks becomes very important and how that question is asked becomes very important, right? It very much does. And there's ways to ask questions and ways not to ask questions. You know, pain, for example, if you um, put a lot of elderly people together <laughs> into a room, most of them are going to have some pain. So right. if we say we're in a specialty Alzheimer care unit or a conventional nursing home unit or a skilled nursing unit or anything along those lines, there will be a lot of people in there who have pain. If they don't communicate the pain, nobody knows they have the pain. Right, right. right. I have to quickly just say there is an example that did actually happen at Wincrest where a individual, an Alzheimer's resident, was laying on the floor and just scrunching their back and rolling around and one of the nurses said I think they're in pain they couldn't express that pain but by observing watching observing looking at signs they got an order to give ibuprofen every day and amazingly that stopped and the the person was in pain and so there's certainly with communication you've got to look at other than verbal signs and maybe vital signs and just the overall appearance blinking or sweating profusely and ibuprofen is always preferable to seroquel (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) well other things that the nurse would have to know to pursue or ask about might be hunger Absolutely. Or thirst or Uh um, beginnings of um, uh, pain due to a urinary tract infection or things along those lines, right? right? Dehydration, various Dehydration, yeah. Uh So uh, the kind of training that you are uh, doing there is is just really amazing. How do you disseminate the information that you've learned? How do you get the word out to others? I think... um, you know, I, I do speak at various conferences, and, and I'd like to be able to share that information. Certainly, I have to say with the nursing, even though my job is not lecturing as a dean, I'm, it's more administrative, I do love to lecture when I can and talk to uh, the students. The Alzheimer's Research Symposium, which you were referring to, that was our first Alzheimer's Research Symposium. That was a way to disseminate the information to the community. We had students come, caregivers come, uh, just community involvement coming into our building and being creative, bringing the best speakers that we have to give that information, to disseminate that. And you are planning another symposium soon. Actually, April the 25th is our second Alzheimer's Research Symposium, and that's going to be an annual event. Well, that is great. We are going to break, and we will return and talk some more with Dr. Pearl Merritt. Bring us your questions, your comments. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? 
These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Caring for someone with autism can be full of challenges and triumphs. Wherever you are on your autism journey, we all benefit from good information and guidance. Join host Rob Haupt every week for a friendly show that will leave you inspired and informed. Tune in to Autism Spectrum Radio. Our guests include parents, advocates, and experts to discuss current experiences, treatments, and breakthroughs for those living with autism. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. We are back. Thank you for staying with us through a very interesting discussion with Dr. Pearl Merritt, a regional dean and professor at the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Nursing. And um, I am always uh, impressed, Pearl, when I talk with you about both the depth and the breadth of your knowledge. Um, Let's go back to the greenhouse concept uh, for a little bit. You also had to work with regulators there. No one would look at that building and say, this is a nursing home, right? Right. No one would set set foot inside there and say, this is a nursing home. So what did that take? That was a really a major accomplishment in itself because it, they are homes. They look like regular homes. And, you know, the, the normal nursing home, long hallways, maybe 80 people in a nursing home. And so we had to make sure before we spent the money on these homes that the regulators were in tune with us. And so Before we started building, we made sure I met with the state regulators and the federal regulators, and we had them come out. We really uh, took them on a tour where the location would be. We went over the plans. We did a presentation to them. And again, I have to say, 
they were open-minded. They knew there had to be better ways and better methods of dealing with Alzheimer's residents, dealing with the elderly. And so they actually had suggestions and were involved. And so we worked with them on those rules and regulations. That is what helped make that successful. We were able to open up on time without any problems. You know, um, it as I would approach a task like that, the most difficult thing for me to accomplish would have been what you just stated, you know, dealing with the, the regulatory people because, uh, um, you know, I'm trained as a scientist and as a practitioner and I get impatient with things like that, but there have to be standards and there has to be oversight. Absolutely. And for example, nurses, an example would be in a nursing home, obviously you have nurses in every area, but in these small homes, there is not a nurse at all times. There's another small building next to that, but there's a nurse aide in the home at all times, but the nurse is allowed to go from building to building to building. They're not there. But when you think about it, it's their home. It's not like acute care needs, like a hospital. And so that was a really major difference, but the regulators were very open to that, and it was outstanding and very effective. Great. You have been serving on the advisory board as well for the Aging Texas Well organization. What is that about? That is a group of individuals across the state of Texas, and we meet quarterly, and uh, we work with the legislator. We look at various issues for long-term care for Alzheimer's disease. And um, lately, we have been working on recommendations from us to go to the legislature on what we feel like is very important for the elderly or for Alzheimer's residents. We're looking at things like uh, more community um, areas where individuals may be staying in the homes more instead of going to large facilities. We know there are times individuals must be in a nursing home, must be in a greenhouse home. But if you can keep individuals at home as long as possible, then Many times that's what the family wants. Maybe financially it's better. So we look at ways and make recommendations, maybe for transportation, for the legislature to allow more money, to fund more money for transportation, to take the individual to the doctor, uh, to look at safety, to you know, to have somebody come into their home, make recommendations about bars, grab bars for the showers. Maybe they need a ramp going into their home. And so looking at safety issues, so we working with the legislature to make sure that money is funded for the elderly. Caring for people in the community is so much less expensive and so much less traumatic than moving to this whole other world of long-term care. And of course, newer models facilitate that transition and things like that. But as we talked in a a recent program um, about that transition into long-term care, you know, there are specific identifiable things that lead to the necessity of long-term care. Um, These are identifiable and they would include such things as not being able to keep the medication straight. You know, you can have medical catastrophes if if an individual fails to take medication when they should or forgot that he or she has already taken it and takes it again. And um, and a simple 
um, program just to address that issue can be so helpful. Um, community mobility is, you know, not the least of the concerns that will enable someone to continue to do well out in the community. Right. Um, so with the things that you have done, you know, with the Windcrest model and implementing that model to um, so many different locations, learning from that model, uh, going to the greenhouse model out of Mississippi, implementing that here, seeing what you've seen. What do you see in the future in terms of one, models of of care, and number two, uh, policy issues that will have to go along with changes in care? Well, I think there will be various models of care. There'll be more models of care. People are getting more creative as we have the aging population. And so there will be different models of care. And I think what is important is to look and make sure that the people that own or running the various community homes or nursing homes to make sure they're reputable people and they look at quality of care. Um, I think as far as policy goes, you know, I think we're going to see maybe not as stringent. I think there might be a little bit loosening of certain policies to allow for more um, individuality. I think that's going to be coming down the horizon also. You know, that loss of individuality, individual food preferences, individual preferences for what time you go to bed, what time you get up, um, you know, whether you shower in the morning or in the evening or whatever the case may be, the the loss of that individuality, the loss of the freedom to uh, continue with the living patterns that you've already had. Uh, becomes really important. It does. None of us want to be in an institution. We want to feel like we're at home. That's the thing about the greenhouse homes. The people can sleep late. They can have breakfast at 11 if they want to. They are allowed to live like they would live at home. And so that is loosening up of the regulations. And, And again, we all have our own individuality, so it's important to be able to meet those individual needs of the, every person. Dr. Pearl Merritt, on behalf of uh, our listeners, I want you to know how much I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your experiences, uh, your expertise in these areas. And I am very grateful to you that you've turned your attention to the training of nurses because, you know, as I said in the promo for the show, no one has a greater impact on the well-being of an individual in the healthcare system than does the nurse, with the exception of family members, of course. No one has a greater impact. And your attention to this issue uh, is so greatly needed and so greatly appreciated. So thank you for that and for the many different um, policy places that you have plugged in as well. I know that um, the road... Um, from your house to Austin is a heavily traveled road sometimes. And I'm very grateful to you for the things that you have done there. Thank you. We have next week a guest that uh, I know that you will enjoy. Uh, She has been experienced in uh, the training of various kinds of professionals who provide services in long-term care and she um, has also been a very adv- uh, a very um, 
uh, intensive advocate for the well-being of Alzheimer. Michelle Webb, who's the Director of Dementia Care Services for Pruitt Health. I know that you will enjoy that discussion with her. And um, let me mention, by the way, that uh, our broadcasts are available as podcasts. So get your podcast app on your intelligent little phone and take these uh, programs with you. We are very grateful to you for tuning in this evening. I'm grateful to you, Dr. Merritt, and I look forward to talking with you again next week with Michelle Webb. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.